Well, great. I'd like to welcome everyone uh, here this evening. My name's uh, Peter Trubowitz. Um, I'm the head um, of the International Relations Department, and I uh, direct uh, the U.S. Center at the LSE. Um, tonight's lecture is sponsored by the IR Department, uh, and it's really my great pleasure to be able to, to chair the event, to introduce the speaker tonight, Professor Steph Haggard. Steph normally resides in sunny California, but he decided to spend the term in cold and dark uh, London with us as the Susan Strange Professor of International Relations. And tonight's lecture is in um, Susan's honor. Um, why in Susan's honor? Well, a couple of years ago, the school invited departments to um, proposed professorships, um, and we took them up, the IR department took them up on the offer, and in accepting our nomination to name one of the professorships after Susan Strange, the school accomplished um, two important things in one fell swoop. First, it recognized arguably Britain's most influential scholar of world politics in the last quarter of the 20th century. And secondly, it broke a glass ceiling by creating the LSE's first professorship named after a woman. For those of you who have had or had um, an opportunity um, to see Susan in action, I did as a, um, as a PhD student attending my first International Studies Association uh, conference many, many moons ago. She was a force of nature. She was brilliant engaging, and an unbelievably fierce debater. Uh, at the time, a leading voice in scholarly debates over finance capital, state sovereignty, the future of American power, some things never change. Her work was and continues to be widely read on both sides of the Atlantic. She won a lot of honors while she was here at, um, at the LSE um, but I think the many PhD students spread around the globe who came to the LSE to work with her really are um, perhaps the greatest testimony to the international impact of her work in the discipline. When we proposed the professorship, the Susan Strange professorship, we also had a kind of third agenda, a hidden agenda. We saw it as a means for bringing world-class scholars uh, to the school for a term to teach and contribute to the intellectual life of the IR department and the school more generally, which brings us to Exhibit A, Professor Haggard. Um, Steph is the Lawrence and uh, Sally uh, Krauss Distinguished Professor at the University of California, San Diego. Over the course of his long and distinguished career, he's published 11 books, over a dozen edited volumes, and more than 120 journal articles and book chapters. He's known principally for his work on um, the international and comparative political economy of development, and his corpus of work includes uh, a number of standard texts uh, in the discipline, Pathways from the Periphery, the Political Economy of Growth in the Newly Industrialized Countries, the Political Economy of Democratic Transitions, that with uh, Robert Kaufman, which won uh, the prestigious Lubert Prize of the American Political Science Association for the best book in comparative politics, and Dictators and Democrats, Elites, Masses, and Regime Change, also with Bob Kaufman, which won APSA's best book award 
uh, in the comparative democratization section. A U.S. Army veteran, Steph received his Ph.D. at the University of California, Berkeley, taught at Harvard University before joining the faculty at UCSD. Over the years, he's received numerous fellowships and grants from leading institutions such as the National Science Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Brookings Institution, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and the East-West Center, and he has lectured um, and written extensively about important policy issues ranging from the Asian financial crisis to the North Korean nuclear crisis. And in scholarly as well as popular venues, such as the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and the Jungang Daily, where he's actually a regular correspondent. The title of tonight's lecture is International Liberalism and Its Discontents. For those of you on Twitter, the hashtag is LSE Liberalism. Seems about right. After the lecture, we'll open it up to Q&A, and I'll do my best to try to get everybody in uh, as many questions as possible. If you don't already have your phone on silent, please do so, because this is being uh, recorded uh, for a podcast. And so with that, please join me in welcoming Steph Haggard to the LSE. Okay, uh, first of all, thanks very much for coming. Uh, I want to make one brief comment about Susan as well, because when I was a young professor, I was associated with a group of scholars uh, on the East Coast and West Coast primarily who were um, fixed around the journal International Organization. And Susan uh, came numerous times to the, to, uh, to, to the United States, obviously, when, 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 I was, uh, when I was at Harvard. And it was really interesting to watch her in action because she was uh, archly suspicious of the pretensions of North American social science, um, and rightly so, and particularly the young upstarts or the young upstarts that we thought we were. But at the same time, she was very much engaged with us, and she was really interested in figuring out what are these guys talking about. And so I had tremendous respect for her and, um, and remember her uh, very fondly. The other thing I should say is I'm working tonight under protest um, because two weeks prior to this talk, John Mearsheimer was here. And I don't know if any of you went to that. How many people went to that? Did people go to that? He was like a rock star. And, uh, and, and so I'm feeling a little bit like the band that's going on stage, realizing that the preceding act was much more polished and pulled together than, than I am. But anyway, I do, uh, I do look forward to talking to you a little bit about international liberalism. And actually, I have a few slides, which are mainly for me as much as you. And maybe if those can be put up, that would be good. And I'll, I'll start. Are those here? They should be. Oh, there it is. OK. So um, uh, it, it's very disorienting right now to be an American citizen. And uh, I think it's probably disorienting to be British as well. Um, because uh, we're continually forced to think about the question of what happened to liberalism. And liberalism was never something which um, uh, rallied a lot of emotional support. Uh, but when you see it's gone, you miss it. And so uh, what I want to do um, is talk a little bit about um, international liberalism, and I'm going to define what that means. Most of you who have studied international relations, this, much of this is going to be quite common knowledge in a way. But um, I'm going to talk about uh, some particular challenges 
to international liberalism. And then I'm going to use some of the basic constructs of international liberal theory to kind of look around the globe and talk about what sort of challenges the international system is currently facing. Um, but before doing that, I want to talk about more general challenges to liberalism, because some of them, I think, are fights which are taking place within a family, family quarrels, so to speak, and some are more fundamental, and point to some of the things in international relations theory in particular that you, we're, uh, we're going to focus on this evening. So the first, which I consider an internecine squabble, is that liberalism has always uh, argued about what role the market should play in social life. Uh, classical liberalism was rooted in defense of property and the market and so on. But um, from Hobhouse to Rawls, uh, liberalism has continually reinvented itself and in my view has always, at least in the 20th century, shown an interest in equity, in justice, in fairness, uh, in capabilities. So the, that whole debate about neoliberalism, how much market, I think that's a perennial feature of the, the liberal uh, landscape. Uh, two challenges which are somewhat more um, pointed, however, are that which comes from international uh, realism. Um, E.H. Carr, in one of the great um, intellectual PR victories of the 20th century, managed to arrogate the title of realism for his camp and basically dubbed everyone else an idealist. And who wouldn't want to be a realist? Um, and so, uh, uh, and that challenge is basically to say that liberalism is both uh, not adequately focused on questions of power, but at the same time is overreaching. And if you remember Mearsheimer's remarks, those of you who have seen him talk, that's the charge he brings uh, to liberalism. And then, of course, more fundamentally, you've got uh, what I would call uh, anti-enlightenment thinking, uh, which is communitarian or less politely tribal, and that basically rejects a lot of liberal premises. And in uh, international politics, the norm which is revived under that anti-liberal uh, assault is basically the reassertion of the sovereignty norm and really saying sovereignty is what we should be concerned with um, the nation is what we should be concerned with. The tribe should be what we're concerned with. And you see those divisions playing out both in Britain and the UK. So what I want to do tonight is um, define international liberalism very briefly and look at the classic triad of uh, democratic, the democratic piece, the commercial piece, and institutions, but use those as a way of a kind of a risk assessment of thinking about what's going on in the world system through the lens of liberal theory as opposed to a realist outlook. And then um, what I want to do is talk briefly about the additional risks associated with having illiberal foreign policies in the core countries like the United States. And then more by way of my own personal preferences, talk about how we might um, think of a revived liberalism or a new liberalism that would uh, tackle some of the foreign policy challenges we're seeing in the world. Okay, so that's, that's the agenda. Okay, uh, now, uh, defining liberalism is difficult, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I was reading a book by Joseph Raz, who's a philosopher, and he has a definition which is both circular and at the same time sort of useful. He says, liberalism is identified by a series of political causes, 
a variety of claims about the working of society and the economy and by a cluster of ideas concerning morality. And what I want to focus on um, as, as a social scientist is this particular component of the definition, which is that liberalism is not just a body of normative theory. It's also a, a set of not assumptions, but actually accumulated evidence about the way that the international system works. Um, this bit about a variety of claims. And to me, those claims, the, the core liberal claims, cluster around these three traditions, which I barely think I need to introduce, those that date from Kant to Doyle to drop names, the democratic peace, commercial liberalism, which goes back to 19th century British anti-imperialists, and institutionalism, liberal institutionalism, which of course has its origins in Wilson and in the United States is probably best uh, represented by the work of John Eikenberry. And so what I'm going to do is walk through um, each of these and say something about what's happening in the world viewed through this particular uh, liberal lens. So um, as most of you in the room probably know, certainly the graduate students and I are, this is probably one of the most robust empirical um, uh, generalizations in international relations, which is that democracies don't fight one another. And I should say, by the way, it's much more robust than any claims about the relationship between peace and balances of power, which actually are surprisingly fragile. Um, but it's not just a claim about peace, that democracies don't fight one another. It's also claims about things like civil wars, about capacity to commit, about credibility, about resolve. So there are a series of claims that have been investigated for the last 25 years that suggest uh, that democracies don't fight one another and enjoy other advantages. But there's one crucial piece of this literature which has never been resolved, and that is that those claims pertain to democratic dyads, as you may know. So the claim is not that democracies fight less, it's that they fight less with one another. And therefore, if you want to draw inferences about the effect of the democratic peace observation on the world, you have to know something about the incidence of democracies and authoritarian regimes in the world. And in that regard, um, there's ample source for pessimism at this juncture, and it's probably getting worse. And so um, what I'm going to do is put up this data, which many of you probably um, know, those of you, again, who are, who are international relations scholars. This is just a, a, a measure of the, of the number of regimes of different types in the world. And the blue line, the good guys, are the democracies. The orange line, the bad guys, are the autocracies. But... There's an intermediate classification which we now know to be much more stable than we anticipated, which is regimes that are semi-competitive, semi-authoritarian, hybrid, choose your, your name, okay? And I just want to walk through a number of things on this that suggest a kind of deteriorating international picture for democracy itself. Obviously, this is the third wave, this dramatic increase in democracy, um, and the dramatic decline in the number of autocracies. But note, number one, 
that there's also this dramatic increase in these intermediate or competitive authoritarian regimes, number one, that democracy appears to be slowing in terms of its growth. And what this doesn't tell you is that about a third of the democracies that came into existence when the third wave began in 1974, a third have subsequently broken down. So the reason you get this upward trajectory is in part because new democracies are being added, but other ones are failing. And in the last decade in particular, the nature of the failures have become increasingly perplexing, frankly. Because countries that we once thought were likely to be consolidated democracies and stable have fallen. Uh, and let me give one of the, an example ripped from the headline, though I could choose uh, earlier uh, other ones. Many people here probably don't know um, that after 1974, Venezuela was actually considered a shining example of democratization in Latin America. For 20 years, it managed to maintain a viable two-party system, competitive, elite to be sure, unequal, lots of other problems. And then all of a sudden, it unraveled with uh, alarming speed and now is in its death throes. So a, a democracy that we once thought was consolidated, gone. And in the heart of Europe, you've got Poland, Hungary, you have Turkey at the periphery, you have countries like Thailand, the Philippines, significant middle-income countries that are experiencing regress. Uh, and, um, and, uh, uh, and regimes that are autocratic becoming more autocratic, which I'll come back to uh, in a second. So, um, uh, and moreover, and this, is, this should give us both comfort, but also is a kind of warning. And um, I just want to show you this data weighted. So if we look at democracies, the, the, the share of world GDP accounted for by democracies, you see this overwhelming advantage, not surprisingly, because the advanced industrial states are all democratic. But this only goes through 2011. I was having problems with some data preparing this. But look at this. This is starting to rise. And if you push this forward, it would be here. And the reason why is because China is growing still at 6%, which is faster than the growth of the world economy, um, and is becoming more autocratic after the 19th Party Congress. And so uh, at some level, this is an optimistic picture. But at another level, it shows a trend which is um, worrying, and, um, and uh, worrying also for conflict. Um, and part of the reason uh, is um, because uh, authoritarian regimes are not only playing defense, that is, they've recognized a set of technologies for protecting themselves against democratic pressures. They're learning how to do democracy promotion in reverse. That's one thing. But they're also starting to play offense, and particularly large democratic power, uh, authoritarian powers or autocratic powers, are looking at their neighborhoods and thinking about ways of stabilizing the environments that they're in so that the political risk to those regimes is reduced. And so over the last um, five or six years, you've seen, or longer, 
you see um, the emergence of new authoritarian counter norms, uh, talking about how we should be thinking about civilizational diversity in China, uh, traditional values in Russia, and interestingly, and this is an uh, unanticipated adverse effect of the US war on terror, we see authoritarian regimes saying, our democratic enemies, those are terrorists. You see NGOs being shut down. You see terrorists being, terrorists being blacklisted. You see new en zombie NGOs, fake NGOs, being created by authoritarian regimes with the purpose of protecting themselves. But it's the offense part, I think, which is, is most troubling, which is that, um, that uh, we've seen an upturn in what looks like autocracy promotion. You know, we used to think of democracy promotion as something that the advanced industrial states did with more or less success, but now are we seeing a new wave of something completely different, which is the promotion of autocracy, not really for ideological reasons, in my view, but just simply as a way of stabilizing your near abroad. Think of Russia in Central Asia. Think of China and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and efforts on the part of Venezuela, actually, to do the same in uh, Latin America. So um, if we think that, uh, that there's going to be more conflict, if there's more conflict between democracies and autocracies, then what liberal would say is that if this trend continues, we're going to see more conflict, not because these powers are rising, but because of the fact that they represent contending political visions which generate conflict. How exactly, we don't know. But let me just try two uh, uh, counterfactuals on you that I think represent an important test or mental test we should do. Um, and, and I'm going to make reference again to John Mearsheimer. So Mearsheimer is um, quite well known for pointing out that NATO expansion up to the border of the former Soviet Union was a huge mistake and basically poisoned the relationship between Russia and the West. But imagine the following counterfactual, that at the time of the chaos of the transition of the 90s in Russia, for which I happen to think American economists bear some non-trivial blame, you had a transition to someone who is not Putin. Russia came out of that experience as some kind of moderate competitive authoritarian regime or some kind of democracy. Would NATO have been a corresponding threat? Or was, Na was NATO a military threat to Russia? Or was NATO a political threat to Putin? Those are two very different models of the world. And we can ask the same question about China. You know, there's a big rethink now among liberals about whether they got China wrong, represented by this important piece in foreign affairs by Campbell and Ratner where they say, we got China wrong. But it's not clear they got China wrong, because if you anticipated that a more nationalist and authoritarian China would generate conflict with the United States, and now also with Europe, I might add, look at the economic front, then the liberals didn't get it wrong at all. It wasn't that China was rising that was a challenge to the system. It was that it was rising and was moving in a decreasingly liberal direction that was the challenge. 
Uh, and so I think those counterfactuals, whether I've got them right or not, um, they at least bear thinking because it may not be changes in power that are really at issue, but changes in uh, the nature of the political milieu in which we're operating. Now let me just say, make one other uh, digression because it relates directly to what Mearsheimer presented when he was here. Um, Mearsheimer defined international liberalism in terms of the propensity of democracies, and particularly the United States, for standard reasons of hubris, uh, to uh, intervene around the globe. And he said that the defining flaw of American uh, foreign policy in the post-Cold War world was exactly this liberal interventionism, uh, which has created virtually all the foreign problem, uh, policy problems we have, from Iraq to Afghanistan to Syria to you know, choose your intervention that he didn't like. Um, and of course, the NATO expansion is, um, is an example. And I have to say that um, it, it, I found it somewhat galling uh, to be told by a realist that liberal interventionism was to blame for the U.S. troubles when it was the George W. Bush administration's unilateralist foreign policy interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq that created all the trouble that we subsequently had. And so uh, to pin that on liberals seems to me to be um, you know, somewhat of a stretch. Uh, now, that said, uh, since I'm here in the UK, I think I'll at least make a British reference. Um, those of you who have ever read this speech by Tony Blair in Chicago in 1999, it's redolent of Truman and Kennedy in the sweeping vision it has of the responsibility that the Western powers have to prevent the type of things that were happening in Kosovo. And of course, part of me, for humanitarian reasons, applauds this. He says, this is a just war. Always watch your wallet when something is just. Um, it's not based on territorial ambitions. Give me a break. Uh, I mean, in the literal sense, we're not taking over this region, but we're carving out areas which are sympathetic of us. And we've learned that appeasement doesn't work, and if we don't stop dictators, then we'll, we'll pay the price uh, further down the line. But um, I just want to point out that um, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who is now going through a very painful reassessment because of his views of race, was also quite cautious, actually, about the extent to which liberal imperialism worked. He learned his lesson in part in the Philippines and in Mexico. And a new book by Tony Smith points out that Wilson was more cautious about the ability to spread, spread, spread democracy. He saw it as an organic uh, kind of exercise that only emerged over time. Uh, and moreover, um, if you look at the ambitions of the responsibility to protect concept, it's really limited to quite egregious violations of human rights, um, uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing, and so forth. And it required that there be a, a political consensus to intervene. Um, so these norms that evolved uh, along these liberal lines in the course of the 90s were not uh, expansive in the, in the definition of what constituted an appropriate 
uh, place to uh, intervene. And um, I've just been reading a, a, just an excellent book by Michael Doyle, who is responsible for introducing us to the democratic peace on intervention. And he and his colleague do an analysis of 350 interventions from the mid-19th century to the present, and basically finds that 20% of them work, 20%, one in five. And so I don't think it's true that um, liberals aren't cautious about the terms under which you should undertake um, a foreign interventions. To the contrary, the lessons of Vietnam, the lessons of democracy pr promotion, and certainly the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan suggests that it's extremely difficult to turn a country that has an income per capita of $5,000 into Switzerland. It's just not going to happen. And one of the things we need to do, I think, those of us who have liberal impulses, if there are any of us left, um, should have to think about is, is focus and caution uh, about where and when we intervene. The conditions for success in these kinds of interventions are very tightly abounded. Okay, so let me move on more quickly to two more things so I can, I can wrap up. Um, the commercial piece, similarly, this is, a, this is a set of observations about the relationship between um, uh, commerce and peace that are very simple to understand. One of the best formulations, in my view, is Schumpeter's. It's basically an opportunity cost argument. If you and I are trading extensively, there are opportunity costs for us fighting. And uh, there's no doubt about that. You all know that there were predictions that the integration between Germany and Britain would have prevented World War I, and they didn't. But the argument about the costs of collapsing that relationship were totally borne out exactly as uh, uh, liberals claimed in advance. If you go to war, you may, it may go to war, or it may prevent it, may not. But if you do go to war, the costs of disrupting those relationships are absolutely uh, immense. And, and I think that's as a, a, uh, a generalization which has been tested and holds. And I should say that the standard arguments about growth and actually the reduction of global inequality during this period of liberal hegemony, I also think are in general uh, warranted um, as, a, as a success, a period of uh, tremendous excess. Um, I, I work on Asia and I, I want to just emphasize the point um, there as well. I think. The origins of the EU, the EEC, and the EU as a project of solving problems among the, victor, uh, among the, um, the parties to the war uh, is well known. That was a project which was driven directly by an attempt to commercially integrate potential enemies. Uh, the North Atlantic story, similarly. But the US also placed this bet in Asia. And it placed it initially with the allies reintegrating Japan after the decision to embargo China, uh, which meant this quite radical orientation of Japanese trade and their entry into the gap. But the US supported its allies as well. And then in a very fateful move in 1995, it decided to place the bet that integrating China into the international trading system by supporting its entry into the WTO was not only economically advantageous, but was strategically advantageous. And it's that uh, decision which has frequently been criticized subsequently, including in Trump's 
the Trump administration's national security strategy as a deadly, uh, a fatally naive move on the part of the United States, given what subsequently happened. Um, but uh, liberals and those who are supportive of commercial peace arguments are not, in fact, naive. Um, there are assumptions that underpin this observation, and one is that the two parties are mutual hostages. That is, we trade with one another adequately to, for both of us to be deterred in fighting. And I think they also assume, and I'm happy to be corrected on this because I think it's a point that actually hasn't been made, they also assume that the countries in question are not ruled by politically and economically illiberal regimes because the benefits, uh, presumably, of this kind of commercial integration are also dependent, at least to some extent, on regime type and the question of whether those sources of demand will be manipulated. And here, uh, again, I just want to put up some data that shows some of the large-scale changes that are taking place in the world. Note that this top line is the um, import demand, global import demand of the advanced industrial states, the high-income states. And what you see, again, is this you know, dramatic increase in import demand emanating from middle-income and low-income uh, countries, which is a surprising shift in the world economy. And the four so-called BRICs you know, account for a significant share of that total of all developing countries. Uh, and obviously, most significant in that regard is the role that China plays in the system. Now, uh, on the plus side, I really believe in my heart that um, the prospects of major war in East Asia are minuscule uh, because I believe that this really does act as a fundamental constraint on both parties uh, in their conflict behavior. But here's a different question. Does it stop lower-level conflicts? Because if a lower-level conflict is not adequately disruptive, then why would it deter continued co commerce? I mean, that's an important question. If I have deep commercial ties with you, but we engage in a low-level dispute, even one that's militarized, is it going to stop or interrupt commerce? No. And if we look at China's record of engagement in militarized disputes over the last 10 years, you see this striking fact where China's gotten much more integrated with the world economy and is trading quite extensively, but it's still, these red lines, has a significant number of militarized international disputes. There's something that that link is somehow broken, and it's because these militarized in, uh, international disputes are relatively small. So um, that's a question of whether it will deter that kind of conflict. And then, of course, you have the dependence problem, uh, which is that as China has grown, uh, its neighbors are becoming increasingly dependent on it and naturally are trying to figure out, is this dependence a good or a bad thing? And for a number of them, there have been episodes, South Korea with respect to the deployment of this THAAD uh, anti-missile defense system, uh, the Philippines with respect to bananas, Pakistan with respect to its Belt and Road Initiative, where China is using leverage 
to achieve political objectives in a way which was unanticipated and certainly not possible uh, earlier. So these debates about leverage and influence, um, you know, it's not clear that they cast doubt on commercial peace arguments, but they raise the question of the identity of the parties that are being integrated. Uh, and I'll just, this is a product placement, obviously, so excuse me, you know, we, this is what academics do. But I, I did this book on North Korea, and we interviewed firms doing business with North Korea, and one of the things we learned is, who's on the other side of that transaction? A state firm. And of course, North Korea economy is becoming more open, but with China, and it operates in this netherworld of proliferation finance, uh, money laundering, and sanctions evasion. So it's becoming more open, but with whom? You know? that's, a, that's a consequential question. So if we're expecting transformative effects from commerce, it depends on whether the societies in question are relatively open political economies where those effects can operate, or whether they're state uh, or more statist economies where they, uh, where they don't. Okay, one last pillar, shorter yet, and then I'll just say a few things by way of conclusion. Um, institutions uh, provide public goods. I mean, we, again, we all know this. Um, they provide forums for bargaining, rules, and so on. And uh, this was also a piece of the U.S. bet with respect not just to China, but more generally that uh, the U.S. and its allies would seek to integrate countries into these international institutions, partly as a way, I think, of checking U.S. power to at least some extent so that the U.S. was bound by some rules, even though as a great power it's naturally going to behave in a hypocritical fashion, but also to accommodate, uh, to co-opt, to socialize those that were entering this system in ways that would um, allow it to grow and, and continue to expand and, and uh, provide a, a wider array of public goods. And in one of the, his most famous expressions, I think this will be on John's tombstone, we're sort of roughly contemporaneous, he makes this observation, he says, the existing order is easy to join and hard to overturn. And I, by the way, I couldn't help commenting in a, a lecture here that for Britain, some institutions are hard to join and hard to leave. Um, and I think that that's curiously, in a weird way, was sort of Eikenberry's point. You know, once you're in, these benefits are, you know, are so expansive in a way that you don't realize until you get out of them the extent to which you were reliant on them. And the fact that we're now talking about trying to negotiate a customs union, I mean, this is not a surprise to anyone who does political economy. I mean, Britain's going to have to turn around and recon reconstruct some sort of trade institutions with Europe after, uh, after leaving, if it does. You know, we'll see. Uh, now, here's the point I want to make here very quickly. The post-war period has been an extraordinary expansion of international institutions. This is a data set that goes through 2014. I mean, there's just nothing like it, you know, since the mid-19th century. You know, this growth of international institutions plateauing a bit. And many of these institutions are regional institutions. So, and many of those, in turn, are in Europe. Um, and, and so as the European project has expanded, 
the institutions that surround it have, um, have grown. I can say something about the cost of this expansion on existing institutions, but what I want to focus on that's interesting, and this again, this has just grown dramatically um, in, in the scholarly literature over the last four or five years, is the, the increasing evidence of autocratic cooperation where we think of democracies as being cooperative, but of course autocrats can cooperate as well and create institutions that serve the purpose of protecting their incumbents. Uh, so there's no reason why you can't get uh, autocratic cooperation. And in fact, this is a new project I'm, I'm starting to work on now. If we take the average democracy scores of all international institutions, you see that after 1989, there's this tremendous growth in, in the average democracy scores, but then it starts to fall off as these mid-range um, institutions start to, uh, uh, institutions with middling democracy scores start to grow quite dramatically. And I could uh, expand this list, but ALBA in Latin America, the Shanghai Cooperation, organization, the Gulf Cooperation Council, the Commonwealth of Independent States. I'll just tell one story about this one. The CIS um, election monitoring observers have observed a number of elections. On not one of them, as of several years ago, did the CSCE, European election monitors, and this organization agree on the outcome of any of the elections that they were looking at. So again, you know, organizations that are sort of protective of autocracy. Okay, now, I think you get the picture. Uh, I wrote a little piece a while back called Liberal Pessimism, in which I was saying, you know, just because you're a liberal doesn't mean you can't have a pessimistic view of the world. You know, there are challenges, but they're different than those that, um, that realists are looking at. But I've been pointing the finger at the rest of the world, as Americans are wont to do, and now, in some ways, I have the advantage of being able to say, but it's us too, right? Because we now have a president who, his first foreign policy visit was to Saudi Arabia, in which he basically told the, the audience of gathered states that he's not interested in lecturing to them, which I have a certain amount of sympathy. Uh, but he's, he, he clearly has a preference for dealing with autocrats. He has very little interest in the promotion or defense of democracy or even uh, acting as an interlocutor with our, de our democratic allies. He has uh, he's shown little interest in the integrity of the world economy uh, or the world trading system, and he sees in international institutions as constraining sovereignty. And so it's not surprising that um, the effects of that are uh, to cede the stage to autocrats, to weaken international institutions. And if you want to talk about how I view his trade policy, I'm happy to talk about it in more depth. But I'll slide over that now. I think there's more subtlety there. But I guess what I would ask our realist colleagues is you don't, you, you take issue with liberalism for its preoccupation with democracy, its preoccupation with the commercial peace, and its preoccupation with institutions, well, now we've got a test case of a president who doesn't care about those things. Are we really better off? And um, I've known John Mearsheimer for a number of years, and um, I, I sat down to him. He was at the American Political Science Association after this last book came out. We sat and we talked for an hour. And I said, John, I mean, you seem like a closet liberal. 
Um, you know, you really believe in liberal principles. It's just you think that liberals are naive about power and they intervene too much. And he said, well, yeah, basically that's right. <laughs> and so, um, you know, he has this constrictive definition of liberalism in that book, which is, you know, the U.S. going around intervening everywhere. But that's not the core, guys. The core is this other stuff, you know, sustaining institutions, um, uh, maintaining an open economy, and, uh, and at least doing what we can to promote democracy. Okay, now, I'm really going to conclude. And I'm going to conclude by... Um, by this, this has no theoretical foundation. These are just my political preferences, okay? So be forewarned. There's no wisdom here beyond what I happen to personally prefer. But, but, but I think that some of the things I'm going to say by way of conclusion do help us understand what liberalism has to do to kind of revive itself using these three basic metrics of democracy, the market, and institutions as a kind of um, starting point, okay? So a democracy. And here I'm speaking to my British colleagues. We have to make it work at home. And, and I mean, if, if democracy is seen as a dysfunctional political form, then autocrats will point to that dysfunctionality, as RT and other <laughs> news outlets repeatedly do, to say, why do we need this? So getting it right at home is not a trivial issue. It's a foreign policy problem. If we want to go into the world and say that we represent something, we have to show that it works. Um, so uh, that's uh, you know, sort of point one. Point two is, and here I agree with, with Mearsheimer, actually. I think we have to just be much more cautious about intervening uh, not only because it doesn't work, but also because people don't want to pay for things that don't work. And if uh, liberals want to advance the cause of judicious intervention, they have to be judicious. And I don't think anyone could look at something like Libya and say, oh, that was a foreign policy success. And everything about it was wrong, and, and people knew it at the time. You think you're going to control a country like that by bombing? It's not going to happen. So, you know, a little bit of uh, more, you know, um, humility. Um, on the world economy, you know, this is just really a bromide, but I think hopefully it's not, you know, too tired. One thing I think we've learned from the European economies that the U.S. needs to learn from the European economies is the idea that an open economy is antithetical to a robust welfare state that builds capabilities and provide, provides protection is empirically wrong. It's just empirically wrong. There's no difference over the long run in the growth of the United States and the growth of the average European welfare state. There's no way you can look at that and say, oh, these records are just remarkably different. And both of these are open economies. The U.S. is an open economy. Sweden is an open economy. And so that whole question of embedding liberalism in protections, you know, is something that obviously, you know, I think liberals should be doing. And finally, on institutions, my last word, um, you know, one way for the U.S. and others to go is to just find clubs and retreat into those clubs and play with your friends. Um, but I, I think that um, the U.S. and Europe owe the world more we have to reinvigorate 
universal uh, uh, international institutions. And here I'll just close on this important liberal note. You know, liberalism is a, is a sort of theory of social life in which conflict is just assumed to exist, but you build institutions to moderate that conflict in ways that the parties can live with one another. And so, you know, institutions are not just about the classic defenses of providing public goods. They're also about figuring out across these growing divides and heterogeneity in the world political economy, how to moderate those by engaging in institutionalized uh, uh, pr processes of, of cooperation. And so that's my um, uh, two-minute appeal for a remade international liberalism. Great. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Steph, thanks. That was terrific. Um, um, there's a lot of different things on the, on the table here. I have some questions, but I think what I'd like to do is just open it up um, quickly. And I would ask people to um, uh, just briefly give your name and try to keep the, uh, the question uh, tight and to the point. So let's go. We'll start right down here. Um, hello, uh, my name is Tian, and I'm from Vietnam, and I'm studying uh, economics and politics in uh, Burbank University, London. And my question is, um, do you think Vietnam is still an uh, autocratic offense? Because you know that Vietnam is like they are still argue about democracy and the freedom of speech in in, their con in, in our country. Right. But thing is, like you know, the the whole the whole world they know that, but. And then do you think that Vietnam is still an offense of that? Thank you. Do you want to go ahead? Well, let's take that. No, I, I mean, look, I, you know, I, I sort of painted with a broad brush, but, but you know, I think um, Vietnam is actually a, an extremely interesting case of, of an authoritarian regime which has opened sort of significant space, including for politicians to operate through the national legislature. And so I don't think we should just assume that all regimes are sort of the same. I think Vietnam, the leadership and the public in Vietnam is struggling with thinking about how to evolve you know, in different directions and the extent to which they're going to let that happen. Uh, and so I think one, um, it, this, I'll tell you how this relates directly to what I'm interested in saying. I think we have to make judgments about what's possible in given contexts. And to the extent that we see settings in which um, you know, political life is not fully democratic, um, we, you know, we have to be tolerant accepting of that. It's not our job to remake Vietnam in our image, um, and maybe we, you don't want to. But it's also important to see where, nuance you know, in cases where you see a kind of emergent civil society where you see a certain degree of freedom granted to Vietnamese citizens, where you see a legislator starting to play a role, we should, we should acknowledge that fact. And I think, I think actually the United States has, in a number of ways, you know, looked to Vietnam as someone we could you know, have uh, positive relations with. I don't know if that's fully satisfactory. Um, how about the guy right in the black shirt there, or black uh, jacket? Yeah, right in the middle there. You. Yes. Um, I don't need to stand up. Hi, my name's David. I'm actually 
in your East Asia class. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, suffering, I hear. <laughs> um, my question is, can you see perhaps the commercial piece having backfired, or pursuit of the commercial piece having backfired for states like the U.S. in that by facilitating China's rise, it's given them kind of the power and the platform to attack or degrade um, like the, the diffusion of, dem of democratic values? Oh boy, hard question. Um, you know, was the bet worth placing at the time? Um, you know, yes. You know, I think it was uh, because, and it was partly because, and, and this is addressed to my Chinese colleagues here, you know, the, the people from China. It's very important to understand. The, the United States undertook that bet in part because things that Deng Xiaoping and Chinese leadership themselves were saying about how they envisioned the future direction that China was going. So this wasn't just naivete on the part of the United States. It was also that we were reading signals, not that you know, the Communist Party wasn't going to give up power. No one thought that. But they could imagine a situation in which China looked more like Vietnam, let's say, you know, or you know, that was moving in a direction which was both economically more liberal, I should add, and politically more liberal. But uh, I don't know how it was read here, but the 19th Party Congress in the United States among the China watchers was a shock because no one anticipated that she would not only make the, the grab for power that he did, but also, quite strikingly, that the economy would not move in a direction which many anticipated towards greater, uh, somewhat greater openness. And uh, 2025, made in China 2025, we can fight about you know, whether that's a rational thing for China to do, but it's very clearly you know, creating tremendous rethink in the United States about what the nature of, of, uh, of uh, Chinese ambitions are. So I, I guess what I would, I, I'm going to give you a, in the end, a, a kind of social science waffle, but I actually mean it. The fact that a decision doesn't turn out exactly the way you thought it would doesn't mean that I would say I wouldn't do that again. Because I'm not sure that the bet wasn't a rational bet when it's placed. And I also am not sure that the China story is over. I, I'm not. I mean, I, I think, you know, that country is, how stable is it? How stable is the economy? Is it going to continue to grow at the pace it's been growing? And Xi Jinping's going to own that. So that game is also not over yet. But might it not mean that the theory there was, was wrong because the bet was also not just that, I mean, they, they heard Deng Xiaoping and what he had to say, but I think the bet was partly that um, the commercial piece or integrating, bringing China into the global market, greater trade, greater investment would actually lead to a change in the Chinese identity. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah, I, I mean, that's... That's fair, um, but uh, uh, was, that a, was that a naive bet from the start, in your view? Um, because that's the crucial question, right? I, yeah, I think, it, I, I mean, I think especially given when that bet was made, I mean, I think it reflected there was a lot of Kool-Aid that was being 
taken at that time, because we're talking basically early 90s, I would say, early to mid 90s. So, I mean, I think the key point that you're bringing out is just that, you know, it, it was so contingent, that bet, on China's domestic politics in a way that I think people didn't fully appreciate. So, yeah. I know there was a hand over here. So let's go to the, the guy in the blue shirt there with the fancy sweater. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good evening, guys. Uh, my name is Mohammed, uh, and I'm actually just a visitor. Uh, uh, I will, uh, you know, to start with, I really, really have to thank you for the thoughtful uh, presentation you've done. Like, um, thank you for the effort. Uh, I actually have two questions, uh, if you don't mind, guys. First one. Uh, is I, I really want to hear your opinion uh, whether you think that the states with the current policies they're applying uh, these days, do you see it as a liberal country? I'm, I'm sorry, which one? Uh, do, you, do, do you consider the states as a liberal country with the current policies, uh, especially when it comes, for example, to promote uh, human rights, like, uh, for example, you know, um, I just want to, like, you know, just bring a, a, a small example if you remember the Kashakji story, I just want to hear your, uh, like your, your opinion regarding this matter, if you don't mind, and do you, do you consider it as, you know, uh, a country which promotes liberalism in a, in a way? And the second question is, do you think that liberalism can uh, actually, co you know, exist with religions or not, please? With religion, I think. Yeah. Yes. Well, let me just answer the first question I, again. You know how things work out in practice. I think that many people forget that the that the origins of liberalism actually were tied to beliefs in religious tolerance. I mean, the reason that you wanted to have an order which allowed individual some sort of individual rights and liberty was precisely to defend freedom of conscience. So, to me, those things have always been joined to the hip. In fact, ironically. I think you could make the argument that the only way to defend religion is through a society that's liberal, because if you're not, then you're forcing people into religious practices that they don't want. Um, but but that's, that's a sort of uh, deeper thing. Let me, let me just tell you something why I said it's uh, disconcerting to be a, United States, a citizen of the United States right now. Two Harvard professors, Harvard professors, you can't imagine anyone more at the pinnacle of the intellectual elite in the United States just wrote a book last year, and they're old friends of mine, I've known them for decades, called How Democracies Die, asking seriously, seriously, whether the United States is at risk of becoming autocratic. I mean, that is disconcerting for you know, people like me. And, and so, you know, the answer is no, you know. I mean, we're in a, the reason I'm preoccupied with these questions is because we're in a moment of crisis, in my view. Where, where kind of fundamental principles about the rule of law, about the way we treat and talk about ethnic minorities, uh, I could go down the list, the way we treat the press, uh, the way we treat the separation of the branches, all of that is being kind of thrown into question. Uh, and uh, it's also affected foreign policy. I mean, in part by walking away from a lot of the things that have been quite foundational. I didn't mention this in the talk, but, you know, um, uh, you know, realists like to talk about power. But 
One of the set of institutions that the United States under this administration has thrown into question are security institutions. Mm -hmm. Alliances are institutions. They're not just pieces of paper. They're dense networks, not only of military cooperation, but a variety of other types of cooperation that keep parties talking about a range of issues. If you look at any you know, head of state meeting between the US and its alliance partner, 90% of the statement will be about non-military issues. And to the extent that those um, commitments and institutions are being denigrated, then the answer to your question is no, on each of these dimensions, right? Now, I'll take another question if someone wants to ask it and plant it. But I will say something about the world, about whether I think Trump is liberal with respect to the world economy, because that question, I think, is actually much more complicated. Yeah, but I'll, let's get someone else. Yeah. Does somebody want to ask that question? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so good evening, sir. I am Nipun. I am uh, finally a bachelor student from India, a student from India, uh -huh. and I am planning to pursue my master's in IR, uh, hopefully from here itself. So, um, with regards to uh, my question, uh, I was wondering what are your views on uh, how um, how the U.S. administration would uh, have a role to play in the sort of like um, power balance that's taking place between India and China. Like you had uh, mentioned how. Um, Chinese military intervention has uh, been on the rise to some extent and given the recent Doklam issue between the two countries and also in the light of the fact that uh, President Trump recently made uh, comments on how Indian trade is essentially leaving the US, the US economy shortchanged. So what do you feel would the US role uh, in the South, uh, South Asian area be in the coming years? Okay, I, I, you know, I'm not an expert on India, but I just advised a young woman today who's, who's a student at LSE to study India because I think it's understudied. And I think if we were here, if, when we're here in 10 years, the change, the change with respect to India's position in the world, world system and world economy is going to be one of the central questions of debate. Uh, and, and it's partly, I have a very specific theory of this. I think it's partly because the Indian Foreign Service is understaffed, and as a result, India hasn't figured out how to actually project the tremendous amount of influence it's going to have over the next 10 to 20 years. You look out to 2050, OECD projections taken with what you will, India's as large as China. It's coming, okay? Um, but let me just say one thing because it allows me to get back to um, my, you might call it animus, but, uh, uh, with respect to the Trump administration, but just observations because there is a deep state. I actually believe that. So there are two messages that are coming from the Trump administration with respect to how to handle India. One is coming from him himself, which has to do with things like trade in particular, but the other has to do with the recognition on the part of the United States that if you think you're in a world of great power rivalry, which we can argue about whether that's a smart thing to say, you know, you may need allies. And so at the same time that you see this denigration of the alliances, you also have the vice president, Tillerson, Mattis, Pompeo, making the tours of the <clears throat> capitals yeah. and basically seeking to reassure 
the alliance partners that those institutions, in fact, are robust and sacrosanct. One thing that's extraordinarily interesting that's come out of that process from below, and this was not Trump's idea, I actually know the people who were involved in it, is that the U.S. Pacific Command, based in Hawaii, has been renamed the Indo-Pacific Command. And the reason for that is not because the United States is going to form an alliance with India, but that it's going to be looking at a range of states along the Chinese periphery to strengthen relations with them, not for hostile purposes, we hope, and India is never going to trade its relationship with China for the United States, but to build a set of offshore relationships which strengthen the communities that surround you. And, uh, and you know, in my view, it, to the extent that China feels it's being contained, it has to ask itself the extent to which its own behavior is implicated in that process. And, and that's, you know, that's a difficult, you know, conversation that is for Chinese to have, not for me to tell them what to think. I know there's a hand down here. We'll take a couple. Uh, let's start down here. Um, the guy in the striped sweater, yeah. Hello, my name is Daniel. Um, my question is regard, regarding Trump's current trade policy towards China. Um, would it be fair, given China's tendency towards mercantilism, to say that in many respects for calling them out for that, he is actually doing something to defend rather than undermine the liberal order in terms of trade? Hold. I know you're loaded for so that funny one. So funny that right. question. So, yeah. Um, the woman in the center there. Yeah. Uh, he's coming up. Hi, um, my name is Chelsea. I'm a former student at LSE. Um, I'm an economist by training, so R is quite new to me. But I was wondering how smaller democracies around the world can defend themselves in terms of building their own more self-reliant political clout um, in the context of this growing autocratic um, offensive. And I'm asking this question with ref particular reference to Taiwan and also to, with a less emphasis on South Korea uh, and also with reference to um, you know, historical IR events such as what happened to South Vietnam despite its discontents and its evolving democracy. Okay. You've got two okay. questions there. Let's yeah, uh, well, let me just say something briefly about Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan doesn't have any problem with its democracy, in my view. I mean, it's a robust and lively democracy. Taiwan's problems mainly have to do with how that democracy is going to handle the cross-strait relationship. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that when Tsai Ing-wen was not doing well in the polls, and she responded to the Xi Jinping offer of a Hong Kong solution with a, with a resounding no, in part because she's observing what's happening in Hong Kong, and her popularity shot up dramatically uh, as a result of taking that stance. So this is a longer conversation maybe we can have over coffee or something like that, because it would have to get at the question of how the whole fraught history, even within two years between the Trump administration and Tsai Ing-wen, uh, taking the call, then having to back away from that, deciding how much it's going to do on Taiwan's behalf. But I don't think that Taiwan has a problem in, 
in, you know, in, in running its own political house. I don't see it as facing even the kind of constraints that the United States does. Now, on the, on the, um, this is something that maybe Peter can jump in on as well. Um, you know, one thing that is characteristic of, uh, of the Trump administration is a tendency to try to sort of do a lot of things at once, throw out a lot of flyers, and, and see what sticks. And, but, you know, if you look at the trade policy administration of the administration, an interesting thing has happened, which is that the NAFTA was renegotiated, by the way, essentially on the lines of TPP norms, ironically, which both Clinton and Trump rejected. The South Korea-U.S. trade relationship was, uh, was, that was renegotiated. Uh, with Europe, just over the last two weeks, you now have the negotiating objectives at least being put forward by the two sides with respect to the TTIP, that is the U.S.-European free trade uh, uh, agreement, which Trump had earlier pulled out of, and he's reached out to the Japanese to sign a bilateral free, uh, tra free trade agreement, at least in goods and some services. It would be one of the largest free trade agreements in the world because you've got two large economies. What's left is this focus on China. And here, let me just say something in China's defense. Um, one of the reasons that China is undertaking 2025 is precisely because so, a, such a large range of key standard-setting technologies are actually in the hands of American and European multinationals. And what he's trying to do, as every good developmental state advocate has argued from uh, Alexander Hamilton forward, and by the way, if you haven't read it, I, I wrote this little book on the developmental state. The report on manufacturers in 1794 is just absolutely a stunning intellectual achievement. I mean, it's really something to read. Uh, you know, I, I sort of heard about it and read it, but you know, this guy, Hamilton, saw that he was in this unequal relationship with the British. The only way he was going to get out was you know, through using protection and subsidies. And the report goes into detail, detail, sector after sector, about how exactly that's going to get done. So, I mean, at one hand, you know, you look at the Chinese and you kind of sympathize with their effort to try to catch up, you know. But the question is, it's one thing for a, a, even a Japan or a South Korea or a Taiwan or Thailand to pursue an industrial policy, or Europe for that matter and for a country of this size and resources to undertake that effort. And the, uh, you know, to put the effort in simplest terms, I think that what Beijing is trying to do is they're basically trying to turn the terms of trade against intellectual property. And if you're a European and American, that is something you don't want to stand uh, because that's what your comparative advantage is. And if that's, the, if that's the nature of the bargain, I think it's, there's surprising bipartisan consensus, not in the way in which it's been done, but that something needed to be done. Now, I'll just close with one irony. What is Trump doing? What is he trying to negotiate? He's not trying to impose more tariffs in the United States because he just loves tariffs, though he sometimes sounds that way. He's actually negotiating to try to get American Fortune 500 multinationals greater access to the Chinese market, which is exactly what he says you know, is wrong with the 
you know, with, uh, with, with uh, American companies and the way they operate. I think he's going to do a deal uh, because there's so much other things going on, but sometimes when there's so many other things going on, that's exactly when you go for the gesture. But I think there'll be a settlement of some sort um, uh, coming before the March 1 deadline in which you get, you know, this other round. Do you think durable? Uh, well, nothing's durable in trade because, you know, <laughs> there's always something else that, you know, c comes up. But, but um, enough for him to walk away from it for, for a while. Mm -hmm. I know there are a bunch of other hands. Let's, uh, let's get this guy right up here on my left. Yeah. <clears throat> Hi, my name's Alex. I'm actually a designer, so I'm totally new to all this. Oh, good. Um, Did it make any sense at all? <laughs> well, I thought it was really interesting how you said that autocracies succeeded by managing to evolve um, to w become what you called anocracies. Right. And I wondered whether you thought or you'd had any reflections on whether democracies have a chance to evolve and whether you'd had any thoughts on in what way that might be to continue to succeed. Right. Uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, you know, democracies by definition are a political system that, you know, is based on kind of competitive turnover and change and evolution and so forth. But um, I think at this juncture, frankly, um, it's just striking how the conversation uh, among those who are interested in the study of democracy has shifted from the question of, you know, how do we make it work more efficiently to how do we protect it? And not only protect it from autocratic behavior, because that's one set of problems, but also protect it from dysfunction. Um, and and how, many, how many people in here are from Great Britain? I'm just curious. Oh, so a lot of you. I mean, I, mean, I have to say, you know, you get this problem too. You know, you turn on the news and it's like, oh, God, you know, things are unsettling. But I was so surprised in looking at that vote against, you know, the first vote against May's plan that she lost that by an absolutely historic margin. But then you turn around and have a vote. Do you have confidence in, in, in the prime minister? Yeah, we've got confidence in her. No one wants to make the decisions, right? And so, you know, one lesson is democracies can evolve. And I'm talking about the state level in the United States as well as the national level in Europe by doing away with one institution, the referendum. It's not a way to make political decisions. Uh, you know, I mean, I believe in representative democracy. The people are great. But if you've got an extraordinarily complex question and then you basically say yes or no, you're going to get what you've got. You know? And I know this because I live in California. We've got <laughs> referenda all the time. And you know, you're forced to vote on the stupid things, even though you don't know it's not the right way to do it. But I'm being a little flip. I mean, I think um, there's no answer to your question uh, in the social sciences about what that means. I mean, because different people will focus on different things. Uh, I think there are many more rights, for example, that could be protected, but someone else will say democracy will advance by, you know, dismantling the government and having it do less. And what I think you have to understand about democracy as a political system is it's about those fights, you know. It never gets resolved, right? It's this continuing conversation about, you know, alternatives that are presented by competing parties, you know, trying to get the allegiance of people. So I don't think it's... I don't think it's possible to say this is how we would, you know, evolve. We don't know. It depends on the fight. All right, let's go to this guy down here. 
Hi, this is maybe Patrick. pick up a couple. We'll pick up a couple questions. Patrick from King's College. Uh, so uh, some surveys have uh, recently come out and that say that uh, there's an increased liberal attitude in the next generations. I was wondering if you can comment on that and if you think that this is going to play any role in the international system going forward. There's also polls that show an increased yeah. authoritarian attitude. Yeah, so, uh, so did you want to take another one? Yeah, let's, let's take this fellow, woman right down, fellow down here in the front in the green shirt. And let me get one more afterwards. Is there a hand? In, yes. And then the guy up in the white shirt in the middle there. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much, um, Steph. I really enjoyed uh, listening to your talk. Um, my name is Robin. Um, I was an, I'm an alum from LSC, but now I'm studying um, at the Institute of Development Studies for my master's. Um, I, I've read um, a paper from, uh, written by you and with, by uh, Lydia Tiet. Um, on the rule of law and economic growth, where are we? Um, and I, from what I can kind of glean from the paper, um, you know, you, you, you make the, the case for looking at a kind of rule of law complex um, rather than just focusing, um, you know, in terms of the, the long-term economic growth, um, some people tend to focus on, you know, property institutions, for example, like Asimoglu. Um, you, you say that it's part of a kind of a broader complex um, can I ask, like, in, in terms of this, are you, are you kind of um, making the case that we need to kind of embrace rule of law um, only in developmental states, or is it also for kind of um, North countries as well? I mean, if we, if, well, if we look at the U.S. example where um, maybe, well, for sure the U.S. is kind of backsliding on certain elements of the rule of law complex, like maybe corruption, um, maybe kind of um, authoritarianism. Um, do, I mean, will that affect the long-term economic growth of the USA? Does it need to actually adhere to rule, through, rule by law rather than okay. rule through law? Okay, yeah, so hold that for one second. One more question, right, um, go ahead. Hi, my name is Dhruv. Um, I have one just quick question. Do you think that humanitarian intervention is a dead project? Is what? A dead project. Uh, yeah. Okay, um, so, I mean, these are huge, giant questions. I'm obviously not going to, you know. I, uh, well, I, I have to answer them, I guess, because you guys have invited me here. So uh, <laughs> you, get, you get some answers, which who knows what they, you know. So, I mean, look, the generational issue is really interesting because uh, there's this guy named Joshua Monk who's also, you know, kind of a rock star on the democracy circuit, if there is such a thing. And, uh, and, and he's going around, you know, touting some data actually dominated by the United States that suggests younger people uh, in the United States actually have greater tolerance for, um, for non-democratic forms of government, which, you know, I found sort of shocking. But um, I think that these generational effects are kind of reacting to formative political ex experiences that people have at critical junctures, you know, when they're 18 to 25. And what that means is they're never going to be the same. Because what I experienced at 18 to 25 was, you know, the Vietnam War. And what someone else is experiencing is the Trump administration. What someone else is experiencing is, is something else. So generational studies of generations in politics always have to take into account what exactly was the experience at that moment. But this data from Monk is troubling, you know, because it suggests, surprisingly, you know, kind of tolerance for this. 
Uh, the, the, the question of rule of law complex, um, you know, you, you write some things and you forget what you said. Uh, but but I, I want to make, I'm going to be giving a lecture next week on, on this little book I wrote on the developmental state, and I can kind of take this up in more uh, detail there. But, but there's one point I, I, I kind of want to make that's about development more generally, kind of veering away from this IR focus. And that is that um, the way we viewed um, institutions, the way that many political scientists and economists view institutions and their relationship with growth has focused to a tremendous extent on uh, property rights and the rule of law as a sort of check on government power. And the assumption there is that overweening governments are the constraint on the development process. And I think there's been a sort of subtle shift uh, away from that or rethinking that to some extent because one, a lot of catastrophes for the developing world over the last three decades have had to do with inadequate regulation of the financial system in particular as opposed to too much regulation or the wrong kind of regulation. But the other thing I think we're recognizing is that, that state institutions that are capable of providing public goods, capable of providing public goods, are an integral part of the development process. And so to think that you can turn liberal dials and you know, over, overall economic parameters and get property rights right just doesn't seem to do justice to the fact that there's so much that the state has to provide competently in that context. And I think we're much better, it's much easier to write a commercial code. I think everyone could write a, a, a decent commercial code than it is to figure out how to incentivize a bureaucracy so that bureaucrats are delivering the goods and services that they're supposed to deliver. That's harder. It's much harder. So that, that question, I think, is emerging on that front. On humanitarianism as a dead project, look, I, I mean, I, I think I might have given the impression that I think that, and I actually don't. Um, but you have to pick your shots. I mean, you just have to pick your shots. And I think both on political grounds and just on moral grounds, we have to really have sustained conversations about what are we going to do. You know that you have to be blind. And by the way, I think that this is a fundamental example, just a simple, easy, dumb, simple example of why realist views of world politics are wrong. I mean, are you telling me that this weak, failed state you know, we're worried about power transitions and the rise of great powers. Does anyone in this room think that the Syrian civil war wasn't a challenge to European security? It's a failed state, and it generated all these externalities. And not just externalities in the standard security sense, but these deep divisions in European society about the refugees that they generated. That's a security issue. Um, so I think it's not dead because those problems are, are there and they're going to continue. And, and by the way, I don't know if, if people are alert to the magnitude of the Venezuelan catastrophe. This country is going to generate as many refugees as Syria. It's going to generate as many refugees as Syria. Something has to be done about it. You know, that's too big of an externality to just leave it unobserved. So uh, my answer is no, but I think for political reasons if, as well as substantive and moral ones, you know, there has to be, you know, we cannot solve every single crisis that's out there. That is, that's a great place to leave it, and we're actually out of time. 
I want to make one quick announcement before wrapping up. Raising and Giving uh, is here this evening. Um, and uh, the charity is uh, SHP um, that the LSE has uh, identified for this evening. And that's a charity that um, is uh, to prevent and deal with the problem of homelessness. And so given how cold it is out there this evening, I hope everybody keeps that in mind when they head out. Um, you know, uh, Steph, I mean, given that tonight's lecture was under protest, this was really very good. And it was also, you know, I mean, I kind of thought I didn't plan this, but this was a terrific bookend to John Mearsheimer's lecture two weeks ago. So I want to thank you very much. Well, if you record it, we'll send him a copy. <laughs> right. Thank Thanks you. Thanks very much.